0: Let us bow our heads in prayer here. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you for our time together. And uh, Lord, we do praise you and give you thanks for your word that you revealed who you are and what you expect of us. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us think well on the different biblical texts that we'll be looking at. Lord, we don't want to make mistakes, and we want to have a worldview that comes from your scripture, not from our own ideas. And so I do pray, Lord, you would help us to be good interpreters, that you would help us to establish the worldview that you have in Scripture, so that we may know your word and may know your Son better. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to do a little bit of review of of where we were last time. And I want you to recall that we're doing some background to Revelation chapter 9, which is the fifth trumpet. And recall at the fifth trumpet, what do we have? Well, we have these release of demons. They're locusts, but we proved that there really are demons that are coming out of the abyss because there's an angel that is over them. They come not from a field like normal locusts do, but they come from the abyss, which is the holding tank of where these demons are. And we're going to be examining biblical passages that suggest that these demons who fell, in fact, were held in a temporary holding tank until the final judgment. Now, if you recall, there were three things that I wanted to talk about regarding the worldview that we should have concerning the release of these demons And how Satan uses these demons. And ultimately it's God who's sovereign over them. Number one, we said that the battle is about the two different seeds. The seed of God and the seed of Satan. And Satan wants to wipe out God's people, doesn't he? So that's one of the battles that's at hand with this paradigm. Second, I said that it's about the battle to rule over the earth. And remember Jesus said, he said, uh, pray in this way. He said, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So his rule will come to earth. We know that. But it's also a battle for whose name will be glorified. Satan and humanity that follows after him want to make a name for themselves. Where did we hear that? At the Tower of Babel. We're going to see the same thing in Daniel's 70th week as Babylon is rebuilt. Mankind is going to try to build a name for themselves. But we know that God is going to tear that down, and Jesus Christ will have the name that is above every name. So that's what this battle is about. Now recall, I told you that we had different players. The player, of course, most importantly in this big drama, is Yahweh, the one true God who's always existed. There was never a time that he did not exist. And he created all things, as it says in Colossians 1.16. Remember, visible and invisible. And so we talked about the heavenly realm, and also the earthly realm. In the heavenly realm, Yahweh had vice regents. They're not co-regents. They're vice regents. And the vice regents he had were the divine council. These are angelic beings. A percentage of these angels... Oh, I'm sorry. On the earthly realm, we had mankind. It's supposed to be God's representative. That's us, right? But regarding the divine council, you have two different groups. The obedient ones, which I would just say are angels... And the disobedient ones, for our sake, we'll just call them demons. Now, we know that these disobedient angels at some point, according to Genesis 6, did a boundary crossing. Notice what I mean by the boundary crossing. Notice that blue line. We have our blue line here. Think of that as a boundary. We had the disobedient demons cross a boundary. They went from one realm to another. And you're going to see that explicitly stated in Jude 5 through 7 that they left their proper abode and went from one domain, their proper domain, to a different domain, that is the earthly domain. And they caused big trouble on the earth, didn't they? In fact, Israel was commanded to wipe them out. So these are the players that we're talking about. And what we're going to say is that these disobedient demons who went into the daughters of men, they end up being locked away in the abyss. And that's where they're released then in Revelation 9 okay but because that seems so strange we want to lay that worldview out for you so they created the Nephilim as we talked about and recall in this slide what did we talk about we talked about where these demons came from notice the phrase the sons of God we talked about last time that that phrase is used four times twice here in Genesis 6 twice in Job we know the two references in Job obviously refer to angels why Because it said the sons of God presented themselves before God and Satan was among them. Now how could Satan be among people in the throne room of God? No, the sons of God were not human beings. They were what? They were angels. And so we know that the sons of God is a reference to the angels. Well, what did they create? Well, they created the Nephilim. And we said that the Nephilim, they have two things that are significant about them. Remember, this is The Nephilim are created by these angels impregnating women. And so there's this race that's dramatically altered. God has a seed. He has people that he wants to be servants of him. Satan distorts this demonically. And so now he has seed. And so the battle over Canaan is a battle to eliminate Satan's seed. Now, the Nephilim, notice they're called mighty men. The term is Gabor. On the next slide, I'll show you that's who Nimrod is. So there's evidence that Nimrod was one of what? He was one of the Nephilim. Now, there's another thing that's true of the Nephilim, that they were men of renown. Now, literally, they're men of the name. Now, what's very interesting, when we get to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, when humanity builds Babel, what are they trying to do? They're trying to build a name for themselves. Okay, so again, the battles for the name, who's going to be glorified? Is it going to be Satan and his seed? Or is it going to be God? Is going to be Yahweh? Well, it's going to be Yahweh alone, isn't it? So the men of renown, the men of the name, well, we got to Genesis 10, we see Nimrod. Notice it says that he became a mighty one. That's Gabor, just like we saw in the previous slide. The Nephilim were the mighty ones. Here, Nimrod is a mighty one. We saw other evidence that, yes, from Sumerian writings, the idea of Nimrod is very tightly tied to this idea of the Nephilim. Now, we also saw that Nimrod was the founder of what? Babel and Assyria. Notice on the screen in red. Now why is that significant? Because Babel and Assyria end up being the nations that crush God's seed, Israel. Who crushes God's seed in 722 and wipes out the 10 tribes so we don't even know where they are anymore? Well, it's Assyria. Where did it come from? It came from Nimrod. What about Babel? Babylon crushed Jerusalem in 586, destroyed the temple. So, Where did it come from? It came from Nimrod originally. Now at Babel, when we go to Genesis 11, follow the flow of thought. Here Nimrod a Nephilim brings about Babel where all the nations, instead of honoring God, try to make a name for themselves. It says in Genesis 11, verse 4. They're trying to make a name for themselves rather than Yahweh. What does Yahweh do? He diffuses that by confusing the languages, doesn't he? Now, right after that, when we get to Genesis 12... God takes one man from Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, from Babel, which is brought about by the Nephilim, and he takes this one man, and he is going to make a new nation, a new people, a new seed, a new humanity, and he's going to make Abraham's name great. And so when Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, Jacob becomes Israel, and Israel's role is to what? Make God's name great. And one day, we're going to see the 70th week of Daniel, when it's all completed, when Messiah reigns in Jerusalem, yes, Israel, who comes from Abraham, will make God's name great. And God, in fact, will win this battle. Now, we left off then at a place where I wanted to show you there's going to be judgment on these fallen angels. And specifically, I'm talking about the angels that went into the daughters of men that created the Nephilim. So, Conceptually, think of we have angels that all belong to God. He created every one of them. Well, then some of them rebelled. We call them demons. Of those that rebelled, demons, some went after the daughters of men and were locked away, others did not, and they're not locked away. That's why Jesus has to cast them out, etc. Okay? We're talking about now those who are locked away in the abyss. And we see evidence of that here. In Jude Now, before I read to you, Jude, turn your Bibles very quickly to Matthew 25:41, because I want you to see that the eternal judgment is something that incorporates the angels, so says Jesus himself. Again, Matthew 25, verse 41. Notice here in Matthew 25:41. Jesus is talking about this judgment upon unbelievers but he links it also to the judgment of the angels he says then he that would be God will also say to those on his left depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels and by the way that's why I like to use the term angels some of Heiser's writings he doesn't like to use the term I do because it's what the biblical authors use okay so if anyone's reading Heiser's book that's one thing where I'd probably differ with him on. I like to use the term angels because the biblical authors did. Okay, So the devil and the angels, his angels specifically that fell, are going to go to eternal destruction. Okay, Now, what I'm going to show you in Jude 5-7 through 7 on the screen is a judgment that's in two parts. One is these demonic beings are going to be in confinement and they're going to be released in Revelation 9. Okay, well, then they're going to end up being thrown into the lake of fire forever when we get to Revelation chapter 20. I think that that's the proper worldview. But with that, we're going to turn our Bibles to Jude. And as we turn to Jude, I want to talk a little bit about why Jude wrote what he wrote. The big issue that Jude was dealing with, I think, was twofold. He was dealing with false teachers who denied that Jesus Christ was coming. I think it's very identical to what Second Peter is addressing. Second Peter, I think, obviously takes after Jude because there's such similarities. Now, the issue is because Jesus is not coming, you can live any way you want. And so you had false teachers that were really antinomian, meaning they were against the law. And they were teaching that you can live any way you want, you can have sexual immorality, live a licentious lifestyle, and they did so. So not only did they teach it, they lived it out. And, and because they lived it out and they taught that, they were really denying, as it says, the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So, listen now to how Jude remedies this. What he's going to do is he's going to show three examples from history where God did judge those who crossed boundaries and rebelled against him, okay? Now, the three examples he's going to give is one of Israel who rebelled, even though he'd taken them out of Egypt. He's going to use the angels that transgressed a boundary. They went from their proper domain in heaven to going after the daughters of men, then he's going to use Sodom and Gomorrah. They transgressed a sexual boundary as well, just like the angels did. So those are the three examples he's going to give. And so I'll pick it up here in verse 5 through 7. Jude says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, this is Israel, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, so let's stop there. So that his first example is that of Israel because of their disbelief? What did they do? They fell in the wilderness and they disobeyed. So remember the New Testament and in the Old Testament, our Bible shows that faith and obedience are always linked together. If a person never obeys God, it's evidence that they don't believe. Now we're saved only by our belief, aren't we? Faith alone and Christ alone. But I like the analogy of the car. Think of your car. It has an engine. Think of that as faith for our salvation. The engine that drives our salvation is faith alone. But if your engine is on, it must necessarily what? It produces exhaust. That's your works. So if you're not producing exhaust, then is your engine of faith really on? No. Okay, so you have to produce exhaust. It's not the exhaust that saves you. It's the engine. The engine is faith, but the good works are evidence that you have that faith. So the reason Israel disobeyed it was because they didn't believe. Uh, I like the analogy, too. Think about a chair. I can say, yeah, I believe that that's a chair, but unless I'm willing to sit in it, do I really trust it? That's the idea of faith. Not only do we say, yeah, I know who Christ is, but he's for me. I'm trusting in him. And we act accordingly, don't we? Okay, now we come to the second example, which is in verse 6. It says, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. Now, notice it says that these angels did not keep their own domain. The term domain there is, comes from Arke, which can mean the area of rule. So they leave their proper area of rule. They don't keep that. And what do they do? They abandon it, and they go elsewhere. I think the idea is that they go after these women. They leave their heavenly realm, and they go after these daughters of men, as it says in Genesis chapter 6. In fact, I want you to see that there's a play on words. I'm going to pull up my laser pointer Notice they did not keep Reo, their own domain. God's response was what? He has kept Tereo, them in eternal bonds, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, specific with this idea of judgment, I want to be very specific here. Notice the idea of the judgment of these demons in this verse. Notice where it says he has kept in eternal bonds. There's this idea of keeping them. They're kept in bonds until when? Well, until the great day. Now, the great day is a reference, I think, to the day of the Lord. And I've already laid out probably numerous times, too numerous for some of you, I'm sure, that the day of the Lord is a broad period of time. I think it's most synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. So in the 70th week of Daniel in Revelation 20, sure, they'll be destroyed. But until that time, and they're going to be let out in Revelation 9, but until that time, they're going to be held within these bonds so they can't physically go after people anymore. Are you with me? I think that that's what's going on here. Now, notice below, in red, at the very bottom, it says they're also exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, that's not just the angels, but it's also Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so it's all of them. But realize what they're, where they're heading towards is eternal destruction. That's where they're going. And I want you to see that this wasn't just a concept in the New Testament that these angels and that these demonic beings would be destroyed. It's something that we learn in the Old Testament as well. In fact, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah 24, verses 21 through 22. I want you to see that this judgment was declared, and it's declared in many other passages as well, like Psalm 82. But it was in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah 24, 21 through 22 By the way, the section that we're in in Isaiah 24, sometimes it's referred to as the little apocalypse. And the reason it's referred to is because it's very similar to the apocalypse that we have at the end of our Bible, the book of Revelation. It reveals many of the same things. Notice it says in Isaiah 24, 21 through 22, so it will happen in that day. This is the day of the Lord, that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high. Now stop there. Who are the host of heaven? Well, Bob is going to be showing us in a wonderful video that he did back in 2008, he's going to lay out the whole world view. The host of heaven are in fact the divine councils, this angelic realm. Literally in the Hebrew it's the height in the height. Now the reason we know even in context here that these aren't simply stars and the moon etc. or planets, these heavenly beings as it were, is because they're going to be judged. Why would God judge the moon and the stars? No, these are demonic beings that he's going to judge. Notice what it says. He says, and the kings of the earth on the earth. So he's going to judge both those in the heavens, that would be the angelic realm, and the kings of the earth. In verse 22 it says, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. Now notice it says, and after many days they will be punished. So notice there's a confinement for a period followed by the judgment okay well that's exactly what Jude 6 is talking about so if in fact Isaiah 24 is talking about the angelic realm being judged specifically I would say demons well then I think it's fair to say that Jude 6 here is as well okay I think that that's fair now notice here there's a connection between the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah it says that he has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day notice in red And then it says in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Does everyone see the just as? Okay, in Greek it's host. Okay, and there's two reasons why Jude uses it. First of all, he wants to show another example. Remember, he's using three examples to these false teachers who are living licentious lifestyles. He's giving them three examples to show them no judgment will come. The Israelites were judged. Angels are judged. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were judged. So you will be judged if you rebel and cross boundaries that God has, in fact, given and ordained through his word. All right? So the just as does that, but it also links the angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you see a direct link grammatically between the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged, in gross immorality now notice this phrase in the same way as these okay so what I want to point out here I'm gonna get my pointer up notice the these we have a demonstrative pronoun it's masculine plural that's linking back to our masculine plural angels does everyone see that so here's what I want you to see Get rid of my laser pointer. Well, I'll keep it, actually. I had so much trouble with this laser pointer. Wish I would would have never had it. (laughs) (laughs) Here's one way we can read this, just to make it clear. You could literally read it this way. You could say, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulged, notice we go to indulged in gross immorality in the same way as these. Does that make it more clear? Grammatically, it's the same thing. Does everyone see that? So the these is linking back to the angels. So the angels are committing the same crime as those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Does everyone see that? Okay. Now the term for same is homois. Oh, I'm sorry, it's homois. homois. The idea is that's where we get the term for homosexuality, the same idea. Right? Why? Because, don't get me wrong, this isn't a connection just because of that term to homosexuality. What I'm saying is it's the idea of the same. It's identical. What's homosexuality? People go after the same sex. So the idea is they're doing the same thing. Now, what is the sin that they're engaged in? Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels. Well, it says right in the text, they engaged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Now, gross immorality comes from ek pornuo. Does everyone recognize the term pornuo? That's where we get our term pornography, isn't it? Okay? So now there's a link between the Sodom and Gomorrah who are doing sexual immoral things and that of what? The angels. The angels were doing the same thing that they did. Now, what's interesting is notice the phrase where it says they went after strange flesh. The term strange there is heteros, which literally means other. They went after other flesh. There's a scholar who writes in the Word Biblical Commentary series. His name is Bacham. I know Bob has read him quite a few times. And he claims, I don't go with him here, but I just want to let you be aware of this. He thinks that's a deliberate reference to the fact that these angels were going after flesh that were other than themselves. In other words, they were going after human beings. And in the same way, the Sodom and Gomorrah people, they were going after flesh other than themselves, namely the angels. Does everyone see what I'm saying? So they're both leaving the proper domain. The humans are going after angels, and the angels are going after humans, and he thinks it's that specific. I would say it's more general than that. What I would certainly say is the angels are leaving their proper domain, going after humans. That's correct. But Sodom and Gomorrah is probably more of a reference simply to homosexual behavior. It's boundary crossing. Bob has talked a lot about that category. God has laid out boundaries, and when we cross the boundaries that he's given... We're sinning and we're in rebellion against Him, and so in both cases, we have boundary crossing. The angels went after women; Sodom and Gomorrah went after homosexual, a homosexual lifestyle, which was boundary crossing, not in keeping with God's word.
1: Yeah, Bob. If you look at the definition of sin, yeah, the Greek word hamartia, yes, it means missing the mark. Okay. And we can think of a bullseye or a exactly. target. Okay, to miss a mark implies that the mark has boundaries. Exactly. Okay, if there's no boundaries, you can't miss. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Very and good. If somebody says, uh, here's my gun, just shoot it anywhere you want to see that it actually fires you can't miss the mark because <laughs> there isn't one. Right. So sin is defined by God defining boundaries, whatever they may be, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Next week, we're going to see teaching about the second commandment. Yeah. Amen. About the host of heaven. But the boundaries are drawn by God. Yeah. And antinomianism is denying there are boundaries and saying, we can do anything we want. And I would say that's the prevailing view in America.
0: That's right. And the politicians
1: are saying, don't let all those evil people tell you you can't do anything you want. That's how they think.
2: They don't believe there's
1: boundaries. And the pagan gods, like Gaia, the (laughs) earth goddess, or... Mother Earth doesn't draw out any boundaries for us. Exactly. Well said. That's why they built the Golden Calf. The Golden
0: Calf doesn't have boundaries.
1: Yeah, we'll talk about that next week, right, yeah. Will, on this video. And we will have, I found the PowerPoint. Oh, the nice. original one. And I believe that we'll have these for you for next week, because the thing goes most of the hour, and I'm preaching next week. So get that, write down anything and everything, that you want to talk about. Wow. Then the week after that, it's my turn to teach Sunday school, and I promise to answer any questions. I can't promise I'll have a good answer, <laughs> but
0: I, I promise I'll try. <laughs> Very okay. good. Yeah, Norm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, speaking of uh, boundaries, and yeah. uh, in Luke 24:37 through 39, Yeah. Well, after Jesus' resurrection, he came back and he appeared in the room with the other 11. Right. And they were, they were afraid. They were very frightened. Yeah. And they thought he was a ghost, he was some yeah. spirit or something. So he says to them, he says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is... Myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone, bones as you see that I have. Sure. So he's, he's basing the proof of his resurrection on the fact that spirits can't have, wouldn't have flesh and bones. Isn't that a boundary that he's setting that they yeah. can't cross that boundary? And, I would say and that that's true that?
0: now. Um, here's the problem with that norm, though. In, back in Genesis 19, what did the angels look like? Remember when the angels came to visit Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. Were they not like men? Yeah. They were. And so what we're saying in fact I'll get to that objection later is we're saying like when Jesus says in Matthew 22:30 that in the resurrection they neither marry or are given in marriage but they're like the angels yeah. in heaven we're saying yes I would affirm that that's the way it is now. I would also affirm that their angels in heaven don't marry. But I'm not saying I think what the Bible's teaching us is that's not always the way it was. That there was a time when these did become corporate corporeal, physical beings, these angels. That's what we see in Genesis 9. So we have to be able to affirm both. To say normally, yes, today, certainly we don't have spirits become flesh. But certainly in Genesis 19, they did.
1: Yeah. Well, not only Genesis 19, but Genesis 18. Yes, that's right. The angels that visited Abraham were corporal. That's right, the angels. They sat down with him, he greeted them, they ate together, they face-to-face discuss things. Yeah. So, that was the way it was. And I think the purpose of what Jesus said was to prove he had a real resurrection body. Exactly. It was body. Exactly. Yeah. And But what it said in Genesis 18 and 19 would indicate how and why we don't know. We just know what it says. Right. It's also interesting in that passage, Norm, in
0: Luke 24 that he says... Um, a spirit does not have flesh and bone, mm-hmm. as I have. I would expect flesh and blood. What's interesting is he says flesh and bone. And there's some, some look at that as just to say, well, that was the way the Hebrews, it was a Hebraic expression, talking about flesh and bone, meaning yeah. um, corporeal, physical body. But what's interesting is you and I as Americans use the term flesh and blood. Well, I, I don't know if we can make too much into it, but some scholars have claimed that this is a reference to, look, remember in the Old Testament, life was in the blood. Well, being in the resurrected state, now life isn't just in the blood. You know, he's, he's no longer going to die again. Um, he's forever in a different order, a, a spiritual sphere, a corporeal, real physical body, but one that can go in and out of the, the heavenly realm into the earthly realm. And that's why he seems to appear and disappear, etc. So there's a lot in that. But what I would affirm is what Bob just said, is we have evidence from the Old Testament that the angels did become physical beings and they looked like men, so much so that you have the Sodom and Gomorrah people wanting actually to physically um, be engaged with them. So, yeah, thank you for that. Well, I'm going to keep moving now. So here's what I want to do is I want to summarize. Notice here, I think that clearly we see that from Jude 5 and 7, the angels and those in Sodom and Gomorrah committed the same kind of sin. There was boundary crossing, and they're both going to be judged eternally for it. The angels here are kept in eternal bonds. There's a confinement for a period of time until the final destruction. And that seems to be what we're reading about then in Revelation 9. They're let out. It's within the 70th week of Daniel, the day of the Lord. But in the day of the Lord, they're also going to be completely destroyed. Okay? Now, one thing I'm going to point out, I'm going to come back to this, is Jude 5 and 7 has a heavy resemblance and probably even a borrowing from the book of First Enoch. And I'm going to show you that here in the next few slides. Now, why is that important? Well, First Enoch is not inspired by God. I'm not claiming that, nor would Jude, the author. We'll talk about that. But the issue is the worldview that first Enoch gave was a worldview in which the angels left heaven, not all of them, again, the ones who rebelled, and they went after these women. If that were, in fact, not the view of Jude, he would have to be very explicit to refute it. Is everyone with me? Because it was the worldview of the audience who was reading what he wrote and i'm going to show you in just a few slides that it's almost word for word some of the terminology that he uses is found in first enoch which was written about 200 bc some 200 years prior to jude writing what he wrote okay now with that let me turn also well here are the similarities i guess i got them right here let's look at them let's begin now again first enoch what's first enoch it's a, what's called a pseudographical writing you can hear the root for pseudonym a pseudonym is somebody who writes a name that's not genuine it's false so we don't believe that Enoch really wrote this. Okay? It's written many, 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 many thousands, hundreds of years after Enoch lived. Okay? So this is not considered inspired. And I'll deal with that. Why are we seeing citations of it? Well, we'll, we'll talk about it. But let me show you some evidence that there's clearly a reliance upon 1 Enoch with Jude. Notice here in 1 Enoch 12, 4 through 5a, this is the worldview that the Jews had. It says, declare to the watchers, Of the heaven who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women, and have done as the children of earth do, and have taken unto themselves wives. Now, who in the world are these watchers? Well, these are the angels that fell and went after the daughters of men. Now, one interesting passage, I don't have this in my notes, I wasn't going to get into this, but turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 11. I want you to see a connection to this idea of the watchers, at least a potential connection that I think is worth noting. In Joshua chapter 11, remember you have the conquest of the northern part of Israel. Joshua, remember Joshua's name is Yeshua, right? He's bringing the people into the promised land, pointing forward to the greater work of the ultimate Yeshua, who brings his people into the ultimate promised land, right, Jesus? Well, here, notice what it says. I'll start in... uh, I think I'll just start in, well, I'll start in verse 1. It says, When Jabin king of Hazor heard of this, he sent to Job, Jobib king of Madden, and to the, the kings of Shimron, and the king of Axoph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and to Arabah south of Chinneroth, that's the uh, Sea of Galilee, and in the low land, and in Naphoth-dor on the west, now notice verse 3, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon, notice Hermon, in the land of Mitzpah. Okay, so the Hivites here, he's going after them, and they're under Hermon. Well, what her, what's Hermon? Well, it's Mount Hermon. Okay, now, according to First Enoch, this is where the watchers came down. Okay, now what's very interesting about that is notice here in the Bible, it says in verse 4, it was also called the what? The land of Mitzpah? When you start doing work into what that term is, mitzvah means watchtower. Now, this isn't a reference to our Jehovah Witnesses watchtower, right? It would be literally, you could translate it, the place of the watcher. Okay, so in First Enoch, it said that the watchers came down. Where did they come down? At Mount Hermon. And now we have seemingly biblical corroboration that it was the place of the watcher. It was widely known that this was where the angels came down after the daughters of men. And so this is why Mount Hermon ends up becoming It becomes known as Bashan, and so there's always a battle in the book of Isaiah and through the prophets, the battle between Mount Bashan, the heights of the north, where the demons came, and Mount what? Zion. God has established His holy hill where Mount Zion, and so those at Bashan, the demons are jealous. They want to wipe out Mount Zion, so this is why you have Babylon and Assyria created by one of the Nephilim, who are trying to wipe them out, but God is going to use that to judge His people and to bring about the messianic promises. Why? Because he's the king. He's Yahweh. No one can thwart his purposes. Okay? So I just want you to see that this idea of the watchers is connected to the angels. And when they leave their abode here in First Enoch, it's almost identical to what Jude is saying. Jude just calls them angels. It says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. Right? Okay, so now let me show you another connection. Here's First Enoch 10, 4, and 6. Now here's a discussion, by the way... uh, We we can't take all of this as inspired. We don't know who this Raphael is. First, Enoch is trying to purport that this Raphael that you're going to read about is one of the archangels. We don't know that, okay? So, we don't know if that's... Because it's never corroborated by Scripture. But that's what the discussion is. The Lord said to this archangel Raphael, bind Azazel hand and foot and cast him into the darkness that he may be sent into the fire on the great day of judgment." Well, sure enough, you have the same language in Jude 6b. He has kept these angels, right, in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, notice in 1 Enoch 10.4, where you have, it says, bind Azazel. Azazel, there's a reference in the Bible to that. And I want you to see that it happens on the Day of Atonement. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus 16.8. Leviticus 16.8. I just want you to see some connections between Enoch and... In the Bible. Again, Enoch's not inspired, so we have to take it with a grain of salt, but the Bible certainly is. Azazel, as you'll find out, is a demon. And on the Day of Atonement, what you see is there's one animal, one goat is given to Yahweh, but there's another goat that's to be given to Azazel. And it's not that the demons are needed to be propitiated or paid off, it's just that that's where sin goes. Sin, they just have their due. What does Azazel get? He gets the worthless goat. He goes into the abyss, the idea of removing sin away from the people of Israel. So notice here, Leviticus 16.8, here's the two different goats. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Yahweh, and the other lot for the scapegoat, literally Azazel. And one of the reasons why they think it's actually a demon is because it's a proper name. Just as one goat was given to a proper name, namely Yahweh, the only true God, there's another goat that's given to another proper name, Azazel. The same that's mentioned in First Enoch. So more than likely, this is a demon. In fact, Azazel was related to Mot, which was the god of death, small g. So there's a demon of death, and everything outside the camp of Israel represents death, governed by the demonic realm. So one goat removes the sins of the people, expiation. Remember David says, Psalm 103, so far as he removed our sins, right, from the east, from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us, the idea of that one goat is removing the sins of the people to Azazel, to the place of the demonic realm. It's removed, it's gone. So anyway, the point is, is I think that that perhaps is what's in their mind here. It's a demon, and a demon is being bound here in First Enoch. Okay, so where are they being bound? Well, in darkness for the judgment of the great day. So again, there's confinement until judgment. The same thing that Jude is saying. Okay, now let me show you another similarity that's pretty amazing here. Notice First Enoch one nine. It says, And behold, this is about the Lord coming. He cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now notice Jude 14 through 15. It's almost word for word. It says, It was also about these men that Enoch... In the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, how do we understand this? Well, I think certainly Jude 14 through 15 is borrowing from 1st Enoch. Now, 1st Enoch is not inspired, and so what do we do with that? Well, here's something I want you to consider. Think about what Paul says in Titus 1.12. Remember, he cites a Cretan poet. A Cretan poet, what was his name, Bob? Epimenides? Something like that, a philosopher? Amen. Whatever it was, this, this philosopher from Crete had a saying, and the saying was this. He says, one of the, the Cretans are, are, yeah, are liars, yes, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, Does Paul imply then that Epimenides is an infallible source from God? No. Even a stopped clock is right twice a day. And so Paul is simply citing it, it's as true as far as it goes. That part he could affirm, yes, these Cretans really are that way. Now, the rest of Epimenides, we have no idea if it's true or not. It's not from Scripture, or Paul doesn't comment on it. But that was a true statement that he would in fact affirm. Another one is Aratus. Here we have a Greek philosopher that Paul quotes from in Acts seventeen twenty-eight. Remember the famous uh, showdown at Mars Hill, and he says, "For in Him we live and we move and we have our being." Paul is obviously taking what this Greek secular philosopher meant to refer to some pagan god, and he says, "There's actually the true God of heaven that that's true of." So again, does Paul imply that Aratus was some inspired prophet? No. In fact, we only know that it was true, and it was only true as it applied to the only true God, Yahweh. Okay? So my point is, what's the problem then if Jude cites from a source that he knows it's been revealed to him is in fact true? But I think that that's how we should understand Jude. We only know the parts of Enoch that are true based on what's validated by the scriptures. Okay? Now, again, the reason I'm showing you this is Jude is obviously using similar material as first Enoch was. First Enoch, the worldview, the people who read that type of material, the worldview that they had was one in which the angels left heaven and they had relationships with women. That's the worldview that they had. And so if Jude didn't have that same worldview, if that worldview was incorrect, he would have to to refute it and to give us a correction in Jude 5 through 7. But instead, he doubles down. Is everyone with me? So this is the worldview of the biblical authors. And so that's why I want to do this segment with you, is because this is the worldview that they had. I don't like it, but it's true. A lot of times people say, well, I don't like the doctrine of election. Well, as an airline pilot, I didn't like gravity either. But it still existed, and I had to deal with it. And so what we're simply saying is this is the worldview of the biblical authors. If it were not, Jude would have had to have corrected it here. And he does not. In fact, he teaches the same thing. Okay? So the biblical worldview is that you really had angelic beings who went after these women. And whether it happened at Mount Hermon or not, we're not sure. That's probably conjectural. We don't have proof. But some of this information in First Enoch was apparently true. Okay? Now, any questions or comments thus far? Let me, um, yeah, Brian.
3: <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, I'm probably being very foolish, but I'm going to put all my cards on the table. Okay. Um, so where do I begin? Um, <laughs> I don't believe fallen angels and demons are the same thing. I, need, I think that they need to be in two separate categories. Okay. What Norm is referring to yeah. are demons, the disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim. Azazel is a fallen angel, not a demon. They need to be in separate categories. Okay. That's number one. Number two, Enoch is not one entire document. You're right. It's five, I agree five, as a whole, first Enoch is not inspired. The book of Watchers, which is what Jude is quoting from, is older. It's different. It's tacked on to four other things, one of which is really weird. Yeah. Okay? So that book of Watchers is different. That needs to be pulled out of 1st Enoch and looked at by itself. And a lot of scholars have done that. There's even a conference, an annual conference, called the Enoch Conference. Because of stuff that was dug up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're trying to figure out this, this worldview. Sure. And w- how does it tie into different, a lot of different things. So it's, it's a huge subject. The Jude thing is not like the Cretan thing. That says Enoch prophesied. That's right. Enoch was is listed in, if I'm not mistaken, the line of faith in That's Hebrews. Right. Yep. Enoch prophesied when he said this. Yeah. I don't think I don't think that Jude was getting this information directly from God. Jude was reading the texts. Jude believed that at least that portion was inspired. Amen. He was prophesying when he quoted it in Jude. That's right. So I don't, I don't relegate that quote in Jude to being similar to the, the Cretan thing. Well, why is that? Well, because I don't You, you think... just said,
0: hold on, Brian, you just said that he was quoting... Directly from Enoch.
3: But he's saying that Enoch prophesied when he
0: said. I completely agree. And the other reference
3: is the guy saying that that the Cretan, the poet, uh, prophesied when he said that? No, that's not
0: the claim. But the claim is he got that material elsewhere, did he not?
3: Well, I understand the similarities. But I put this on a higher, there's more uh, spiritual veracity to it. It's, so when we
0: have this right here, let's just look at this screen. We know that 1 Enoch, the Book of the Watchers, if you pointed out, was probably written around 300 B.C. to 200 B.C. That's the consensus among scholarship today.
3: Right, and some think it was even older. And so now
0: we almost have word for word Jude 14 through 15 in 1 Enoch, and you just admitted that, yes, he's borrowing from 1 Enoch, and I'm simply saying Paul also borrows from other sources. He borrows from the Cretan philosopher. He borrows from Aratus, and what I'm simply saying is all I know is Jude is inspired. I don't know if First Enoch is or the Book of the Watchers or the other sources. But what I can affirm is that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude is saying this was true.
3: Amen. Yeah. Amen. And he's doing yeah. that by calling it out and saying Enoch prophesied when yeah, he amen. said this. You know what, I
1: have a, can I oh, yeah. comment on that? Um, there's another incidence to that. Ian, somebody will help me. have to help me find it. You know, when you get older, your Rolodex flips more slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't there a passage where it said the high priest prophesied? In other words, he said better it's he expedient knew. that one man die rather than the nation? Exactly.
0: Uh, is that in John? It, it is. In, uh, yeah, it's better than he knew. He was speaking about the yeah. high priest so in The
1: high it. priest is said to have prophesied. Yeah. And he was correct, but he didn't know that's what he was doing. Yeah. I don't know if that's analogous to what you're saying.
3: Yeah, and that isn't even, isn't even my main point. I think, yeah. I think another, another deal that we should probably really look at is these categories of fallen angels and demons or spirits. Because there really is a difference between those two things. Okay. Um,
0: well we, we can look at that next time well, let's, let's do maybe a, a special on that I'll tell you I can lay out reason why I hold to that view that I do but I, I would love to see a difference on that but here let me continue on because what I want to do is I want to show you that what Jude lays out in Jude 5 through 7 2 Peter lays out the same idea
1: by the okay. way I found a oh, did oh good I said it moved slowly I didn't, <laughs> it didn't move at all <laughs> John eleven fifty one, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Yeah. Cool. John eleven fifty one. Exactly. So yeah, he's speaking better than he knew. Now here here's what I want to do is I want to get us back
0: to Second Peter and I'm going to show you that in the Second Peter two passage, the same thing is being taught. Now why is that significant? Because Jude and Second Peter both Jude and Peter are really dealing with the same enemy, an enemy who's teaching antinomianism, an enemy who's saying that Jesus isn't coming back, and we can live any immoral lifestyle we want. Okay, so listen to how here we have Peter refute this idea. Second Peter 2, 1 through 4, he says, but false prophets, and this would be tied to the false teaching, he says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So stop there. What was the issue in 2 Peter? The issue is interpretation. The false teachers are saying, Peter, you got the Bible wrong. Jesus isn't coming back. Just prior to this, Peter proves from the Mount of Transfiguration that he had his interpretation authenticated by the author of Scripture, God himself. When God said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. A quotation from Deuteronomy 18, the new Moses, but also a quotation blended with Psalm 2:7, that the Son would come back and He would rule and reign over all the nations. Peter says to himself, well, is Jesus right now ruling over the nations? No, therefore He must come back again. And so he had the proper interpretation of Scripture authenticated up on the mountain that Christ must come back again. And so anyone who refutes that, is in fact an error because God himself authenticated Peter. So now he links the false prophets here in verse 1 who are giving false teachings to the false teachers who are giving false interpretation of Scripture. So he says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, how much more will he go on to destroy you? That's the idea, right? The ungodly teachers. Now, notice here in this text, where does Peter say that these... Demonic beings, these angels, are going to go. Well, they're going to go to hell. Okay, now hell here is Tartarus. And what's very interesting about that, Tartarus is very unusual. It's a Greek concept, and it comes from Greek literature. In fact, Michael Heiser does a good job at summarizing the data and the research of this word. He says, Tartarus, quote, in classical Greek literature was used for the destination of the divine titans, a term that is also used of their semi-divine offspring, unquote. So the point is, in the Greek culture, they also had the gods come down and create a god-man hybrid. Right now, this is not inspired, but the idea is these titans are very similar to what we have as far as the Nephilim. Okay, where are they locked away? Well, they're locked away in where? Tartarus. Okay, so what Heiser is saying is Peter's borrowing from a concept that the Hellenistic Greeks would have understood very well. Were these locked away? Well, Tartarus, the same place that those who created the titans were locked away. That's the idea. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is notice the connection in the text here with sensuality. Oh, I'm sorry, I've got pits of darkness first. Pits of darkness, by the way, the reason I show you that is that's a link to Revelation 9. Revelation 9, where are the demons locked away? They're locked away in the abyss, the pit of darkness, it says. Okay? Well, that's exactly what Peter's teaching us. So when they're let out, They're let out to have tangible contact once again with humanity, but it's only those who dwell upon the earth. But I also want you to see this connection to sensuality. That's this immoral sexual component. It was true of the false teachers that Jude was dealing with. It's true of the false teachers that Peter was dealing with. And it was true of the angels. These angels that are locked away engaged in sexual immorality. They were boundary crossers. And I think that that's why Peter is using it as well. Okay, now, let me do a a summary of the evidence that we have thus far. I want to just read through some of these things. First of all, let's go back to our idea of the sons of God. Sons of God, B'nai Elohim. B'nai, sons, Elohim, God. It does not refer to the fact that these are gods that are somehow equal to Yahweh. They are not omniscient. They are not omnipotent. They are not omnipresent. They don't have any of the incommunicable attributes of God. They do not. But they are simply called this because they, they dwell in the same domain or realm, in the spiritual realm, that Yahweh does. Okay, The sons of God is used four times, B'nai Elohim, twice in Genesis. But if you're trying to understand how Genesis 6 is to be interpreted, it doesn't help you, those two references. You have to look elsewhere. The other two references to B'nai Elohim, sons of God, are used where? In the book of Job. In the book of Job, 1, 6, and 2, 1, clearly the B'nai Elohim are understood as angelic beings okay so when the sons of God angelic beings went into the daughters of men I think it behooves us to say yes these were angelic beings and not merely the godly line of Seth etc number two Jude links the sin of the angels to sexual immorality that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah we saw hosts just as and homoios tropos in the same way in the same way as those at Sodom and Gomorrah engaged in sexual immorality so did the angels that's what he does. And again, I would just make the point that if, in fact, because he's borrowing a lot of information for First Enoch, if Jude's worldview was different than the one taught in First Enoch, he would have explicitly had to state so. But he affirms it and doubles down. Uh, Peter also, he just listed the holding place of these fallen angels in Tartarus, a place used of the semi-divine titans. Okay, very similar to that of the Nephilim. And again, why do I mention that? Well, think about it. The rest of the world's cultures are always trying to explain the flood. Now, are there sources inspired no but we have secular historians and secular cultures that are trying to explain biblical phenomena i think the titans was just such a thing um, let me deal with some objections to these angels matthew twenty two thirty. everyone turn your bible there we'll spend the rest of the five minutes on this and then we'll we'll close matthew twenty two thirty. here's the objections that i've seen regarding certainly angels cannot become human beings and have uh, sexual relations Uh, Matthew 22.30, this is where it comes from. Remember, Jesus here is arguing about those who deny the resurrection. They give that goofy Leverite marriage example, the the seven different brothers. Well, he counters that. Matthew 22.30, he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Okay, so let's stop there. What people do with that text is to say, Look, you can't have, in Genesis 6 angels having sexual relations with women you can't have that type of physical contact and what they'll do is they say look they are like the angels in heaven they don't they're not given away in marriage my first reply to that is notice the are like present tense it's a present verb of amy the fact that there is no sexual contact now between angels and human beings doesn't mean it never did happen is everyone with me Just because it's not happening now doesn't mean it never did happen. Second, notice it says that it's the angels in heaven. Well, the angels who committed this sin and who, in fact, had relations with women aren't in heaven. Where are they? Well, they're in the abyss. So can Jesus distinguish between two different groups of angels or of his divine counsel? Well, certainly he can. Yes, the angels in heaven, they never rebelled against him. And therefore, what in this way? Well, they're, they don't, they're not procreating. Okay, so again, I don't see it at the objection having any merit. Number three, the text does not say that the angels can't have physical relations. It says that they don't. Okay, it doesn't say they don't have the ability. It simply says that they don't. Number four, we know that angels appear to be human with human functions in Genesis 19. Why did the Sodomites want to have relations with these angels? Well, because they looked like men. You see, they were homosexuals, and they thought that these were men. And that was the sexual boundary crossing. So whether the boundary crossing is they want to go after angels or they want to go after men of the same sex, I think it's the latter. They didn't know that they were angels. They just assumed, I think, that they were men. But again, that shows you that angels certainly did take on human form. <laughs> Number five, the demons in Revelation 9 sting people. And Revelation 9, that's what we're studying. They're going to come out of the abyss and they're going to tangibly sting people. Now, if angels can't tangibly contact human beings, then are we going to say Revelation 9, we just got to throw it out? What are we going to do with the text? Because they had tangible contact in Genesis 6, they're going to have tangible contact in Revelation 9, but if they can't have tangible contact in Genesis 6, well, then I would say they can't have tangible contact in Revelation 9, therefore... The locust, you're relegated, I think, back to the Apache helicopter idea. And then you have a demon, an angel of the abyss who's allowing Apache helicopters out or whatever. I don't know how you would interpret. How do you interpret Revelation 9? I think it's clear that these are demonic beings who are having tangible contact. It's not with the regenerate. It's only those who do not have the mark of God on their forehead. So again, saying that that angels can never have tangible contact with human beings would contradict, I think, both Jude 5 through 7, uh, Genesis 6, along with, I should say also, with Revelation chapter 9. Okay, so clearly I think this is the, the worldview that the biblical authors had. And therefore, when we read Revelation 9, we can just read the text for what it says. These demonic beings come out, and they do have indeed tangible contact. That's why we're laying this out. So I know we're out of time. Does anybody have, we got probably a couple minutes here. My, I think my watch is a little fast. Does anybody have any more comments or ideas they'd like to express? Bob next week is going to lay out the big worldview of how this all works from Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, uh, Deuteronomy 4:19. He's going to have many other passages. He's going to lay out the larger worldview of how God governs his creation using the divine counsel. My task here this morning, using Jude 5 and 7 and 2 Peter, is to show you the biblical worldview of the author was that these angels did have contact with humans and that they are currently in confinement waiting eternal judgment okay if we come away with that i think we're coming away with a a biblical worldview a worldview in which the inspired authors inspired by the holy spirit in fact taught so with that let's bow our heads in prayer heavenly father lord we thank you for these difficult truths lord i do pray lord that we would again be given wisdom and understanding into these texts i pray lord for my brothers and sisters here that we would seek to know you and your word and not uh, secret things or things that you have not revealed. I pray, only, Father, that as we continue to look at this worldview, that we would see that one day your name alone will be glorified, that you use all creation, whether it's your divine counsel or human beings, you use it all for your glory, for your name, the name of your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen.